We've had lots of support from the Senko. I can speak to her regularly, daily, if I have to. Rory has a homeschool communication book as well, which staff can communicate about his day because he's non-verbal. So as a parent, that can be really worrying about not knowing how his day has been or what he's learning about because he can't articulate himself to me. So that communication between all staff members really is, is just so important. Opening minds, opening doors with EACT, the inspirational education podcast. Hi, I'm Michelle Livesey from Bauer Media, which owns radio stations across the country, including Absolute Radio, Magic, Kiss, The Greatest Hits Network, as well as The Hits Network. Today's Opening Minds, Opening Doors episode is all about early years education. So giving some fantastic insight and information into what early years education to choose, whether that be nursery, primary school, and particularly as well if your child has special educational needs, all this information is there for you to make the right choice. So joining us are two very special guests. We have Cleo Brown, who is National Director of Early Years Education for EACT, and also Emily Smith, who's gonna be talking to us in the capacity as a parent who's been through that process. So first of all, I guess Cleo, talk us through what we mean by early years education, and I guess the dilemma that parents face when they start looking at that. So early years education is right from zero to five. And the reason why it is so prevalent and it is such a massive choice that parents have to make is because we know for a fact that as human beings, we learn the most between zero and five. So that is when in your brain, you form the most neural connections. So a child between the ages of zero and five has the potential to form up to one million neural pathways a second so when you think about how powerful that can be, it just shows the, the sheer kind of magnitude of the decision that you're making of where to send your child, which I don't mean to scare parents, but is very exciting in a way. And um, so I guess the what is most important is to choose the right setting that is right for your child and for you and to have that trust built between the professionals and the parent because what happens at home and at school needs to be cohesive and needs to dovetail into each other so that the education that you are giving them as a parent continues with that education that you are providing them then at school so that it's not seen as kind of two separate systems essentially because one of the things that I say when I go around to schools is the top job of an early years practitioner whether it's a teacher or a teaching assistant is acting in loco parentis so you are their parent therefore a parent when they're choosing a school is choosing essentially a third parent for that child for those six hours a day. Therefore, the decision is, you know, it is, it is a big one and it is, you are right to take your time and to be picky, <laughs> essentially. Well, Emily, you've been through that process. How was that? Did you know where to start? Did you feel like you had the weight of the world on your shoulders? How, how did that work for you? It is quite daunting and overwhelming um, trying to find the right place for your children. Um, we looked at the areas um, initially and then just had a little nosy around some of the settings. One setting in particular where we went to, it was it was like your gut feeling. It's like when you walk in when your house buying and you're looking, it's like, this is where I want to live. And it was the same when we looked at the schools for my children. Um, it was really, really welcoming, warm, just being around staff members, like being really, really reassuring. That was kind of the selling point for, for us. 
And you don't realise, do you, like you were saying, you're sort of looking, it's the process of where your child's going to go to school and it's very exciting, but the underlying science behind it is that's where they're going to develop and, and, and find their friends and settle and, and like it's say, the power learn. That, that, that that can have. And I think that does, as, as you said, Emily, that starts with the culture of the school. Because when you're choosing a school, you're not just choosing it for the early years. So it can be really tempting to kind of go to a school and think, oh, this is a fab nursery or reception. You know, they've got all the different areas of learning and things like that. But actually... In, you know, you are choosing where they'll go to school for the next seven years. So it's, you know, reception all the way up to year six or nursery or possibly even two year old provision. They could be there for eight years, you know, which is very exciting. And it does allow your school to become essentially, like I said, a third parent, that that extra family, which is really, really exciting. More people to essentially love and teach that child. You know, it's a very powerful connection that we can have so it is really important to to choose the right one and as you said like that all starts with the culture of of what it feels like the second you walk into that school or even the second you have that phone call say even with the receptionist or again it's do you get the right feeling that 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 school that that setting is going to take care of your child and give that your child what they need it's a big step as well, isn't it? Because like you say, that child's gone from being with you as a parent, Emily, to suddenly being with that third family, as uh, Cleo's just described it there. How big a step was that for you? Um, well, especially for one of my children, they have additional needs and they was born one year before the, the pandemic. So very, very attached to close members of the family. So for them, it was quite difficult for them to start getting a relationship with the staff members that they was going to be working with but for me I was quite comfortable with the fact that I was able to put trust into the people that are going to be working with my children initially the first time round it's it was easy but then with the my second child who has additional needs it was a little bit more harder for me um I think because of the additional needs I needed to make sure that they would be the right people to understand him and able to work with him in a way that would work best for him. What position does that put schools in clear when you know that you, you're going to have to do extra to help that child, to help support that child if they have additional needs? So I would say it all comes down to that collaboration. So if, if that child is starting in reception, has, has the reception teachers, have they gone to see that child in nursery so we can give them the best possible start? Because what we don't want is to be, start, is to be spending, say, the first term getting to know those child's needs when if that is the way that we have to do it then that's obviously absolutely fine if we know nothing about that child before they've come but if they've come from a local nursery or from a local setting we need to be getting out there to get to know that child so the second they start in September we can say well what they need is a visual timetable they need an hour next where they need a separate area where they can go and can we know that say they're friends with this other child who's also coming from the nursery. Have we made sure to put them in the same class? So again, it's thinking about every step that we can do before they even walk through the door because every decision that we make needs to be based on what is best for that child, not kind of the one-size-fits-all approach. Um, and I think what Emily said was really interesting about 
the effect of the pandemic as well, because again, the science has told us that the effect on communication and language and special educational needs because of the pandemic has been absolutely massive. So the children are coming in um, you know, at a, a more of a disadvantage than they ever have been. But yet, unfortunately, because of the pandemic, we've been able to do, we have had to do less kind of phasing in because of the fact that of just opening up and having more people. So especially for parents like like Emily, who are parents of children with additional needs, it's more difficult because they haven't been able to get in as much. So I think what we need to do now is start building back up that transition from earlier settings into reception and into schools or also even that transition from home into school so that we can build the children so that they're ready for their confidence and they're ready to learn in more of a school capacity as well as as the home capacity. Does the preschool element then help in that situation? I mean, it, it definitely does. So it's it's quite an interesting thought because obviously there are lots of schools that have two-year-old and three-year-old and then they go into nursery. So then the transition with regards to that just means that the children are used to the systems. They're obviously used to the teachers. And as a parent, you have that, that Senko there as well, who's the consistent adult. So as a parent of a child with needs, it means that you have somebody consistently um, seeing your child through their schooling um, and if it's if it's in a separate nursery it is just like I said about getting that collaboration and building that bigger picture of that child so again it's not even just say the preschool and the teachers it, is there any way that we can get the health visitors involved and almost have like a multi-professional meeting about this child who might have, have special needs so that we can all have a voice in that child's schooling and in that child's education to help them to achieve whatever it is? Because again, what we know is children don't learn in a linear capacity. They, they learn in whichever way takes their fancy and that's what makes it that's what makes them absolutely incredible and it's our job as not just professionals but as parents to in empower and enable them on that journey whichever way it takes them what's been your experience emily of that support and and that um i guess the routine that's important when your child is in that uh, setting um, it's been quite positive, really, for my son, Rory. So he went to the nursery before he went to reception, which I think made the transition quite smooth. Um, he was familiar with the adults and he was familiar with the setting. So that was something that was really beneficial for him. And we've had lots of support from the Senko. I can speak to her regularly, daily, if I have to. Rory has a homeschool communication book as well, which staff can communicate about his day because he's nonverbal. So as a parent, that can be really worrying about not knowing how his day has been or what he's learning about because he can't articulate himself to me so that communication between all staff members really is is just so important and it really takes away some of my anxieties of leaving my my son in the care of, of other people when I can then go ahead and do my my job and my day-to-day -day things. I suppose the education process is child and parent isn't it or carer or grandparent it's you know because you, you mentioned is it Senko what the, the sort of jargon that comes with it it's it's understanding that isn't it absolutely I mean it's just I 
I always joke and I say that there isn't in education, especially there isn't an acronym that we don't find that we don't love. And that makes it really difficult for people choosing because we throw them out there like I did earlier and I said Senko. But again, if you're not in, in the field, would you know that that means a special educational needs coordinator? You know, you might not. And therefore, if somebody says to you as a parent when you're choosing, make sure you speak to the Senko you might just smile and nod, I guess, and be kind of, okay, uh, you know, and then go away and panic and Google and, you know, when in actual fact, as exactly as Emily said, we can, if we can take away some of that anxiety by, by collaborating and by making sure that we do give parents and children the voice, because as, as Emily said, I think, especially for non-verbal children, that is, that is absolutely key because where most children will go home and you know their parent might say how was your day today fine what did you do today nothing <laughs> that tends to be the conversation but to not even get that would obviously naturally make your anxiety rise completely naturally because you don't even have that feedback so to me to ensure that you have that way of connecting with the parents, whether that is through an online learning journal or a homeschool journal, as well as the conversations at the end of the day to just alleviate, even if it's just some of the anxieties that you would have as a parent, then that is our role as professionals to make sure that we do that and we drive that. And I guess as well, you learn a lot about your children, don't you? Once they've left the the, the home setting and gone into school, you might learn that your child needs special educational um, assistance there. Is that? Did you know about your, your child's condition or needs beforehand or was that something that came more apparent once they'd gone to...? It was, quite, um, it was quite obvious with Rory um, because like, like Rory comes from quite like a quiet home where it's just me, mum, dad and his sister. Um, it's, again, because of the pandemic, he wasn't around. Lots of other children wasn't really able to go to you know the playgroups and, and things like that that we were able to do previously and it was quite a big setting where you know there'll be different noises different smells and things like that that was something that we was quite worried about so that's what we needed to make sure that he, that school would be able to adapt and make things manage more manageable for Rory when he was there I, and I think that Again, as completely as you said, and, and as Emily has said, that children present very differently at home and at school, which is why the collaboration between the parents and the professionals is, is of highest importance. So I've taught, I've taught a child before who was a selective mute, so she didn't speak at all in school. But because of the collaboration that I had with the parents where I had had home visits, I'd seen videos of her at home, I'd spoken to the parents regularly, that I knew what that child was capable of doing. Therefore, I knew what kind of intervention she needed, as opposed to if I hadn't had that collaboration with the parents, I would have assumed that that, that child couldn't do most of the curriculum and couldn't access most of the curriculum because she couldn't verbally tell me when in actual fact she could do it all and she was an incredibly capable girl but because of the nature of the setting of school she didn't feel comfortable so it's about realizing and knowing 
the children in front of you and knowing that they might present differently at home and at school. And again, that that's that's okay, and that we're here to empower them and to enable them to achieve at both home and at school in whatever way that looks like. How important is the inclusion element of it? So you've got a child that might need additional uh, needs and support, but how important is it that they're also very inclusive in the classes with the other children and there's not this, you're in this box and these children are over here? That's a really important point to make, Michelle, because quite often what what's ends up happening is kind of inclusion by exclusion. So again, thinking that a child, possibly like Rory, that can't access the curriculum in the same way as some of the other children where that child is then taken out for an, an intervention. And I always describe them as outerventions because it's not an intervention. They're not in class. You're taking them out, which is, again, just the complete definition of inclusion by exclusion. Why can't he do whatever intervention he needs in the classroom with his peers? And quite often, most of the time, what might be happening in that intervention will benefit all of the children in the class anyway. What is good practice in early years and good practice with SEND, so special educational needs, is good practice for all children. So again, it's about thinking about whether we do just need it for that one child or whether we can just give all of the children access to this this kind of scaffolding. Is there ever a fear from your point uh, point of view, Emily, that obviously Rory will have this routine, um, that that routine may get interrupted for whatever reason at school, if a staff member leaves, or because I, I presume that like everything's put in place and routine is, I guess, key for you know for children in these situations. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes as a parent, your hands are tied and it's really difficult. Um, Rory has experienced that when he's been working with different members of staff and supply teachers and things like that and his routine's been a little bit muddled up and he's not coped very well with it and then that's come home with him again if we didn't have that communication with school we wouldn't know what was what was wrong with him and why he was behaving in such a way um it can be quite frustrating things like that because again you have no control over it and we just have to try and keep him regulated and keep make sure at home we keep his routine as as much as we can and then hopefully school can cooperate with us as well and do the same for him it must be really challenging for schools. <laughs> it, it is, because I think schools and home, really, you know, life in general, it's the best laid plans, isn't it? But it's about helping that child to manage and cope with with the changes. So again, like if you have, have a now a next board or your visual timetable, as soon as you know of a change, are we making sure to talk to that child to tell them about the change? So again, on school's behalf, if we know that that, that 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 child's adult key key worker isn't going to be in tomorrow, say for for an earlier setting. Has that child been told in advance as much as we possibly can? Has that then been passed to to the parent so that the parent can talk to that child that night? You know, remember Mrs. Mrs. Brown isn't in tomorrow, so we need it, so she's not going to be the one meeting you at the gate. But you know, Mister whoever is going to meet you instead because again it's then about it empowering that child to embrace the change and moving moving forward because the other thing that that we need to do is think about our scaffolds that we do put in place um with regards to routines and everything else that they need to be put in really thoughtfully to be able to be removed because 
again, I would always describe scaffolding as we're setting it up and it is always on a journey of reducing. So the same as when we're building a building and we put up scaffolding, that's not there to stay. It is there to be removed. It's there to build up so that we can slowly remove it thoughtfully so that the building stays up. And that's what we're doing with children, with special education. The needs is giving them the scaffold that they need to be able to build themselves up, build their learning, build their confidence, so that when we start to remove those scaffolds, if we need to, to prepare them for for just life (laughs) and to be able to access every area of the curriculum, that we're removing them slowly and thoughtfully so that the building can stay up and so that their, their confidence, their... Uh, you know their knowledge and education stays built because like you say it's a journey isn't it so you've got to go through the early years learning to then go on to further education or whatever pathway children choose the scaffolding analogy is a really important one I guess because you want to be able to remove it to prepare them for the next stages it is it's that ever-changing you know ever-changing journey that they're on and like I said we're always on that journey of reducing the scaffold because that is what's best for the child to be able to prepare them for all of the joys and all of the you know the changes that life does does bring so just going back to then selecting the right school and the 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 situation you were in Emily when you first started looking what would be the main top tips and advice you would give uh, any parent carer grandparent who's looking to get their child settled into early years education Definitely go around and have a look. Speak to as many staff as you can. If you know some parents already, maybe just speak to their, like speak to them about their experience. I had a, a quick nosy on websites to look at policies and things like that. But I would say definitely go in, communicate, especially just try and really emphasise everything you can about your child and just make sure that it's the right place for them and that they can meet their needs. I love to the point you made about trusting your gut as well, like you would if you were buying a house or whatever it is. It yeah. is. I mean, you have that gut instinct, don't you? Yeah, definitely. And if you're comfortable, and then that makes it so much easier because then you're not worried all day thinking, oh my gosh, like I'm not okay with them leaving there. And like, you're counting you on, like you're watching the hours then, aren't you, until you can go and pick them up. So it definitely does help when you, you, you can put that trust into the people working with your child that they're okay, they're safe. I suppose that works both ways as well, because if the child sees that you're anxious and nervous about leaving them there, they're going to pick up on that, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. Because like we had, especially, it was different initially for Rory to to go in because he'd never experienced something like that before. So we was quite worried. But to see that we was okay, like, it's okay, you can go in here. Um, That's gradually now where he can just walk in by himself and, and he's happy to be there, which again, is another big selling point for me. If my children are happy to go into school and, they could, well, my, my eldest can tell me nice things and I can read about nice things that Rory's done, that's, it's a selling point for me and uh, that just what makes me really happy to send them there. And what about yourself, Cleo, from the point of view of giving that advice out of what to look for? Because there's the other flip side where parents might get so focused on a certain school and, and, and there's that process where you might your children might not get into it and you get the second um, offer and, and there's all sorts of anxieties that run with that, isn't there? Absolutely. I would, I guess I would see it as, as quite a holistic kind of approach in the way that you're not just choosing a school, as you, as you said, where you can get bogged down by just one school or even just one element of that one school, you know, that you really like that it's forest school 
and you know, or you really like the curriculum, that it's about thinking holistically about the school that you're choosing. So again, do you do you like the culture and the trust, which is is the bedrock really? You know, you are leaving your child. There isn't anything more important in the world. <laughs> You know, that you have to have that trust and that culture. But then it's also looking at the curriculum, looking at the policies, looking at, like I said, every every adult in the school and how they interact with the children. Because it's not just teachers that are interacting with the children, it's everybody. So it is about having that that family because as a staff member as well, I would always even describe my school that I'd work for as as my family. And it is the same with the children. So it is about having that trust. But like I said, seeing it as all of the different elements that come into the school that makes it the place that it is the same as the way that there's so many different elements that make children who they are. And that is kind of how we need to, how parents can hopefully see it to make the right choice for them and for their child. For any parent, carer, guardian that's looking to start beginning that process of choosing a school early years education. What, first of all, from your point of view, Emily, what would you advise and and what was it initially that you first started doing? So, again, it was just going around, phoning up, please can I come and have a look around today? Or some schools do like an open day or like a stay and play, just where, especially for EYFS, where they can come in, they can stay for an hour, they can look at the provision, speak to staff, things like that. So I would just definitely say... Go around as many as you can and just get that, again, looking for that gut feeling of this is the right place. And obviously from an early years education, from the other side of it, from the school's point of view, what sort of advice would you give uh, at that time now when parents are starting to have a look and and know that they've got to start um, that process? I was about to say it's fast approaching now with the um, applications due soon. And it's just about making sure that you do give yourself enough time to be able to properly look into all of the schools that are within your catchment area so that you are, like I say, getting kind of a holistic view of as many different schools as possible so that you can choose the right one. So making sure that you are going on the websites, doing the tours as much as possible. Um, Again, speaking to them, speaking to them on the phone. If you have any questions when you go away, always just send an email afterwards or give a call because I think quite often parents come away and they feel like they've had all their questions answered rather, but then go home and think, oh my gosh, I forgot to ask about this and this and this. And especially with children with special needs, there are going to be constantly things worrying about your head, but not feeling like any question is too small to be able to ask, to be empowered because you are that child's champion. So making this decision is is really vital and you have to make sure that it sits right with you. And as you said, that you have that gut feeling that this is the right place for my child to grow. Well, thank you so much for that interesting insight. If anyone wants any more information on any of our episodes for Opening Minds, Opening Doors podcast, you can go to the website, openingmindsopeningdoors.co.uk or just search Opening Minds, Opening Doors on social media. Opening Minds, Opening Doors is a Bower Create production for EACT.